Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Welcome to uh, SACPA, everyone. Uh, if I can uh, get you to turn your cell phones off for the presentation, that would be much appreciated. I will just quickly check to make sure mine is off, and it is. Um, my name is Keith Gardner. I will be the moderator for today's uh, session. Uh, today's session is also being recorded, so that's something you might want to know. Our session today is uh, centered around the uh, SACPA Student Speakers Challenge. The question this year was, uh, what is global justice and how can it be achieved? Um, over the course of uh, the last several weeks, students have faced off uh, trying to answer this question in an articulate and creative way. Uh, eight, student, eight students uh, kicked off the 2011 L Student Speakers Challenge on January 18th. Uh, Robbie Rolfe and Thomas Fox, Brittany Koken and Taylor Webb, Channing Stenhouse and Sarah Ortiz-Ospina, and Alex Massé and Roy Tarrant all tried to answer the question, what is global justice and how can it be achieved? A wide variety of solutions were offered, ranging from globalization to climate justice to upholding human rights and the rule of law. Acceptance and respect regarding diverse cultures was also cited as important, as was the possibility of forming a representative world governing body, specifically mirroring, metering out global justice. It was generally felt, however, that global justice in terms of social equality among people most likely is unachievable, not only globally, but also within nations. So today's session will feature the two finalists from the 2011 Student Speakers Challenge, Channing Stenhouse and Thomas Fox. Channing Stenhouse uh, was born in Peace River and raised with two brothers and a foster sister in McLennan, Alberta. In 2006, she moved to Lethbridge to study music. Since then, she has been an active member of the Lethbridge music community and has organized several different types of benefit concerts in order to bridge the gap between music and meaningful contribution. Channing is currently in her fifth and final year of study at the UofL. She's in a Bachelor of Music program and intends to continue her studies in conducting at the postgraduate level. Uh, Thomas Fox is a longtime Lethbridge resident. He was born in Winnipeg. Uh, Thomas took some time off for traveling between high school and university. In his last semester at the UofL, Thomas is, not only, is only taking one class but will also be working on the university's first environmental science honors thesis, analyzing glacier flow dynamics using uh, GIS. His interests include science, music, chess, cycling, activism, and long walks on the beach, from what I understand. Thomas is currently on the board of directors for both the Lethbridge Public Interest Research Group and Amnesty International Lethbridge. He is planning on entering graduate or law school after he's done here. Um, so quickly, before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that uh, the way that SACPA pays its bills is by uh, the kind donations of the people who attend these sessions. So if you can place your $10 for lunch in the baskets that are before you, that would be much appreciated. Um, I would also like to thank the partners for this speaker's challenge, uh, the University of Lethbridge, uh, the Lethbridge Public Interest Group, and yourselves, SACPA, as well as the ULSU. Uh, furthermore, I'd like to thank the University of Lethbridge for its support and the distribution of notices for this uh, uh, council. And uh, also Country Kitchen Catering for a great lunch, Shaw TV for broadcasting these sessions, uh, Sundays at 4.30, and... Uh, any media who might be here, we also thank you for covering these events. 
so what's going to happen is uh, we will have both speakers present their talks. Uh, they'll be both about 15 minutes each. So we'll go through. We'll start with Thomas, and then uh, Channing will go after that. Uh, they'll both have 15 minutes to present their arguments. After that, we will break for lunch, and we will return after lunch uh, so that you can ask them some questions about their, about their respective theses. All right, so first we will, uh, we will start with Thomas Fox. I would like everyone to give him a warm welcome. Hello, thanks for coming. Just a disclaimer, I'm not sure if it's the first environmental science honors thesis, but... Justice, to many, is thought of as a form of equality. However, justness and fairness are not necessarily synonyms. In Iran, it is not fair that male adulterers and not female, or sorry, female and not male, are stoned to death. Yet it is within a unique religious, cultural, and political context that this form of justice is enacted. But perhaps then this is not true justice. While we all differ to a certain degree on what it is that we perceive to be right and wrong, or on the extent to which various violations of law or justice should be tolerated, I think that it would be in all of our best interest to come up with a single, general definition of justice. So I will define justice at the scale of two people, you and I. There is a mutual justice in our relationship when we value our own well-being, when we show complete respect for the well-being of each other, and when we are subject to the same external conditions. Global justice, therefore, is the manifestation of these conditions at the global scale, not only between all individuals, but between institutions such as religions, corporations, and states. So as you may suspect, using the definition I've provided, I will eventually conclude that no, global justice cannot be achieved. Now that the surprise is ruined, I will explain in detail why this is the case. The first premise for the possibility of the existence of global justice is that we are all subject to the same external conditions. All of us were born at a time and a place when humanity is more prosperous than ever before. Modern technology has allowed for unprecedented production of food, medicine, hygiene products, and manufactured goods. However, many of us are born into far more unjust circumstances. Some are born into poverty, disease, hunger, and so on. These random external injustices occur not only at birth, but also throughout the course of our lifetime. Some get struck by lightning. Some hit black ice while driving and end up paralyzed. The second premise is that all human beings and institutions show complete respect for one another. In The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn stands at the gates of Mordor and says, Let the Lord of the Black Land come forth. Let justice be done upon him. Injustices are inherent within and across all societies. While the orcs of Mordor probably had fairly poor working conditions and were likely not unionized, I would hazard to say that the infantry of Gondor did not receive universal health care, at least to the standards of the king. One of the main problems with trying to achieve global justice is the following. What may be considered just to one person may not necessarily be just to another. This relates to another problem, impartiality. The perfectly just uh, entity will treat all others with the same fairness. However, 
we are all biased in some way. The second major problem is that many injustices are committed by mistake. At a smaller scale, I may say something that unintentionally hurts your feelings. At a larger scale, consider the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Furthermore, the occurrence of injustice tends to instigate a positive feedback effect. Take, for example, the issue of poverty. Say we both have $10. I steal $2 from you. I now have more assets than you do and more opportunity to succeed and to broaden the gap between us, or at a larger scale and in a less metaphorical sense, between rich and poor. The children of rich parents get better educations, get better jobs, much in the same way that first world nations have the infrastructure to maintain levels of wealth relative to the countries that they exploit. If you flip that coin, 150 years worth of studies, as reviewed by Britt Patterson and others, are indicative that rates of crime among the poor, whether theft, drunk driving, murder, or virtually anything else, are far higher than those in less needy demographics. The last of my proposed premises for global justice is that we value our own well-being. Of course. How, how else can we respect others if we cannot even treat ourselves justly? But haven't we all had too much to drink one night and ended up at home the next day totally debilitated? Haven't we all criticized ourselves too harshly when looking in the mirror? <laughs> Thus, none of the premises can be achieved, and using this definition, absolute global justice is not possible. However, this does not mean that we shouldn't try. If we define justice in more practical terms instead of theoretical, our aim can be to get as close as possible to this ideal. Just because we cannot achieve a perfectly just system does not mean that we should not strive to do so. I will now take the liberty of becoming a little bit more creative in answering the following question. What do we do? How do we get as close as possible to complete global justice? The answer is stability. And stability is in turn a function of three components. Human rights, proper education, which extends beyond the curriculum, and most importantly, heterogeneity of systems. Human rights is the obvious one. Abuses of human rights are not only injustices in and of themselves, but they impede long-term inherent stability by creating a dichotomy between the oppressor and the oppressed, which undermines notions of fairness in the moral system, and in turn leads the oppressed to lose faith in that system. The UN Declaration of Human Rights is a step in the right direction. It includes 30 articles, such as, All people are born equal. All have right to life, liberty, and security of person. None shall be tortured, enslaved, or discriminated against. The second factor, contributing to global stability, which is striving to achieve proper education, is also of great fundamental importance. By education, I mean all forms of knowledge acquisition, education for the young and for the old, in the social sphere and behind school walls. Firstly, we need systems of education that teach the importance of critical thinking skills. I cannot stress how important this is. Children are born with this intrinsic, fundamental, beautiful ability to question everything. Yet in many cases, parents and institutions are both responsible for weeding out this valuable quality. Mom, why can't I go to a friend's house? Because I said so. 
Second, we need systems of education that teach students to be confident in their ability to speak their minds and to stand up to authority when they think it is necessary to do so. From my first grade of primary school to the last year of university, teachers, have always, and, teachers and professors have always been symbols of absolute knowledge. They are not questioned, challenged, or held accountable by their students. While these figures are obviously not perfect, they do not like to admit when they are wrong, and students are therefore disinclined to challenge them. Third, we need education systems that emphasize the importance of empirical truth. We need to teach evolution. We need to teach climate change. I am repeatedly blown away by the general public's perception of such issues. We need to avoid portraying them as issues that are ongoing and unresolved academic debates. Most importantly, we need to teach ecology. Now, many people laugh when I say this, but ecology, in my mind, is the most fundamental discipline and the most conducive to valuable learning. Ecology teaches interconnectedness, and it teaches holism, and it should be mandatory at all levels of education. Now, when I say ecology, I'm not just talking about predator-prey cycles or population dynamics. I'm talking about emphasizing that everything, people, economies, environment, are inter interconnected and interdependent. Ecology is the primary source of the much-needed paradigm shift that will change the way that we perceive our natural surroundings and change the way that we treat the environment and each other. Now, if we take a step back from the deconstruction of the curriculum, it becomes evident that our efforts to provide adu ad adequate education must transcend the formal institutional approach. The children of our country, the future, are forgetting or maybe never learning what it is to be creative, what it is to play. Suburban sprawl, at least in these parts, coupled with an unfounded fear of bruises, scrapes, and the neighborhood child molester, have resulted in a culture of big lawn, no kids. We know that despite an increase in standard of living, average happiness in North America is declining, despite increased average income. It's called the happiness paradox. And yet we know, thanks to researchers such as Stephen Bartolini, that this can be attributed to a decrease in social capital, also known as civic and social engagement, and the substitution of personal contact with Facebook, Xbox, texting, chat rooms, and so on. Books such as Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam explain this process in detail. He shows, using 500,000 interviews, that we sign fewer petitions, belong to fewer organizations, interact less with our neighbors, meet friends less often, and even socialize with our families less frequently. Reuters reports that, should money buy happiness, a person with no friends or social relations would have to earn $320,000 more each year to be as happy as someone who did. The benefits of increased social interaction extend beyond happiness, as they instill a sense of cohesion, involvement, accountability, and social responsibility within the community. Finally, the best way to achieve a stable system is by encouraging the heterogeneity of its components. By heterogeneity, I mean diversity. I mean creating pillars of support for ourselves so that if one gives way, everything else doesn't come crashing to the ground. Consider the trees that line the boulevards of some of the older residential areas on the south side. They're huge and they're beautiful, 
yet they're homogenous in species and age. As they were all planted at about the same time, they will all die within a few years of each other. If a species-specific pathogen comes through the area, they will all be susceptible and all wiped out. Now consider what humans are doing to the planet, and not just the boulevards. We are wiping out rainforest and replacing it with monoculture. We are making our entire economy dependent upon a single energy source, a finite energy source. It is said that we are in the midst of a mass extinction and that we are losing species at rates unparalleled since the Cretaceous period. We are altering the climate, which will soon result in the loss of a number of cryospheric landforms and processes, including permafrost, sea ice, snow extent, and so on. Humans are sucking diversity out of the planet, and in doing so, destabilizing it. Now consider the economy. Economies are most stable when they can take a hit. This means not monopolizing on a single resource or commodity, but specializing in a variety of income sources. Look at Pittsburgh, the steel city. Look at Dubai. What's going to happen to their economy when all the oil is gone? Furthermore, we're also well on our way towards cultural homogeneity. I know anthropologists may disagree, but let's face it. Languages are disappearing. Traditional ways of life are disappearing. Traditional ecological knowledge is disappearing. And when these things are gone, you can't get them back. The world, in so many ways, is homogenizing, and humans are the agents of change. We are trying to simplify and standardize, though we are, in the process, rendering ourselves vulnerable to conflict and natural disaster. Now, before I conclude, I would like to briefly comment on the ways that we identify injustices and the ways that we choose to act upon them. I would like to make particular reference to climate change and environmental degradation. If I were to punch you in the face, the injustice would be evident, as the action and the consequence would be immediately linked in time and space. However, many of our actions are far removed from the consequences. Mr. Bob Dylan saying, For threatening my child, unborn and unnamed, you're not worth the blood that runs in your veins. Should we be held accountable for those actions that may adversely affect others down the road? I think so. We expect the same from our parents and our grandparents. But are we not climbing a ladder and breaking all the rungs beneath us? To what extent is driving your car better or worse than punching someone in the face? Should we measure the severity of injustices on the terms of their cumulative effects? If so, we may, through climate change, be blindly contributing to one of the greatest social and environmental injustices of our time. To wrap up, global justice can best be achieved by maximizing the stability of global systems. With stable socioeconomic, environmental, and political systems, we treat ourselves better, we treat each other better, and we are better able to ad adapt to environmental variability. This stability can best be achieved through preserving human rights, providing proper education, and embracing the heterogeneity of social and environmental systems. While I've spoken extensively about what needs to be done, I've not had time to address the how. While these details are complex and would merit a speech of their own, the primary agent of change is, and always will be, you, the individual. I would therefore like to make an appeal to you. We will bring uh, Channing Stenhouse up to the pulpit, lectern, podium.
Can everyone hear me okay? What is global justice and how can it be achieved? What a daunting question. What is global justice? Is it a universal right to education? Is it a universal equality? Can it be dealt by a judicial system based on legal criteria? Is it our current system? Does justice even have to be fair? What is fair? What is global justice? I can't tell you what global justice is. I can't tell you what global justice is because I do not know what global justice is. What I do know is that life is not fair. All men and women are not created equal. We are not created equal in that we are not the same. We live in different places and are raised with different beliefs. We have different aspirations and abilities, and we will never be the same. I know that some will always be smarter than others. Some will always be better looking than others. Our Canadian injustice, some will always be warmer than others. Some will have more, and some will have less. And some will need more, and some will need less. I know that these differences are bound to lead to a multiplicity of life's realities. Inequality will always exist between people. What I do know is that life is not fair, but things can be better. In the Western world, we tend to share a common belief that a functional democracy brings about the greatest good for the greatest number. Our own Canadian political system is that of a democracy. All Canadians have a right to vote, and all votes are counted equal. By participating in this process, Canadians vote for what they believe will bring about the greatest good. Uh, you can either vote for what you think will bring about the greatest good for yourself, or what you believe will bring about the greatest good for all. But the underlying principle is that at the end of the day, when the votes are tallied, the greatest good will come about for the greatest possible number of people, or in this case, the greatest possible number of Canadians. But it stops there. It is our representatives' duty to act in our best interests, the best interests of Canadians. But we are not an island. We Canadians number almost 34 million, but there exist roughly 6,800,000,000 other people on Earth. And this last part is key, on Earth. No more can we act as though the problems affecting people across the ocean are not ours. Now I realize that it's not revolutionary to consider the planet as a whole. And in 1945, 51 nations joined together to form the UN. And today, the UN acts as an international forum, mediating disputes, promoting peace and democracy, supplying aid to countries in need, 
and in some cases, even eradicating disease. But what we need perhaps more than an institute of international mediation is global governance. We often hear talk of the effects of globalization. Globalization, described as the process through which regions become more interdependent. Even our mainstream media lends time to the economic discussion of globalization. Crop failure in A increases food prices in B, which threatens C security and makes D's currency plummet. With trade relations being perhaps the hottest topic on the agenda of almost all nations' leaders, globalization is increasingly important. But who is it that reaps the benefit of this globalization? Does the health of a nation increase drastically from economic specialization and trade? Does GDP go up? And if it does, does social well-being increase? The short answer is no. Those making the most gains in our current system of globalization are corporations. It is the corporations who make money off the backs of nations. And nations are almost powerless in their struggle with these multinationals. Taxes could be imposed in order to share the wealth among the people, but when the taxes are imposed, the corporation pulls its business and relocates to an area with cheaper resources and labor, rendering the First Nation jobless and destroying national economies, destroying families. It is in this unregulated system that we see a constant changing of the corporate map. No longer are our shoes made in Mexico or our light bulbs manufactured in the USA. Instead, the labor has relocated to a sweatshop in Taiwan. Nations do not benefit from this system. The people do not benefit from this system. What we need to do to rein in this corporate free-for-all is to stop corporations from simply being able to relocate their problems. This must be done by allowing a global governing body to act on behalf of all citizens, citizens of the world. A global governing body would be able to say no to relocation. A global governing body would be able to say yes to labor unions. A global governing body could end the rape of both our planet and our people and at long last impose a system of tax collection that would be for the benefit of all the people. A global governing body at this point would have many obstacles to overcome. Our current world order is largely dependent on nation-states. A nation-state is a sovereign entity and would rightfully oppose adhering to a global government. Many others, if we look to the inefficient model provided us by the UN, would worry about the lack of a trickle-down effect. What I propose to fix these issues and lessen confrontation with sovereign nationals 
is to create a global democracy in which every nation must hold a free election, not to elect their national leaders, but to elect their new representative in this new layer of government. Imagine this layering to be much like the system of local, provincial, and federal governments that we have in Canada right now. Each level of government has a different set of responsibilities and capabilities. Each level of government has a separate set of elections. And each level of government works together to create the most good for their constituents. What I propose is that we use our current system of nation-states to create an even larger, separate government body that could help to create the most good for the largest number of people. Rather than having a nation's representative be appointed by the leader of that country, who may or may not have come to power through peaceful means, each representative must be elected by the people of their constituency. Now, this does not force regime changes on any nation, but instead ensures that the people are being represented at some level, and this aids in the reassurance of a trickle-down effect. This representative could then work with the national government to properly allocate resources supplied by a global government. The people's representation is guaranteed. Now, according to the New York Times, this past year, American businesses earned profits at an annual rate of $1.659 trillion. Profit. I understand that in order to maintain development and growth in our current system, that companies must earn a profit so that they may reinvest and keep our economies alive. But at this point... Rather than reinvesting profits, companies are holding on to their cash while continually giving large bonuses to elite members. Millions of workers have lost jobs because companies have cut production in an attempt to deal with a global decline in demand. Meanwhile, there has been a global decline in demand as workers are laid off and wages remain stagnant. Some workers have been asked not only to work longer hours, but to accept less pay in order to keep their jobs. And with employment scarce, and corporations again willing to relocate for cheaper resources, the laborer is forced to either accept or starve. This outrageous economic model, whereby human efforts sell for pennies, can be stopped if we unite in a global effort. A global governing body would be, would be given the ability to enforce labor laws, environmental policies, and help to establish a true purchase power parity, making the labor of every color and creed of man equal. The concept of purchase power parity is that the cost of a good would be equal everywhere. This could have very positive ramifications, such as a relocalization of economies, a concept that would encourage the heterogeneity talked about, my co talked about by my co-speaker Thomas. No longer would it make economic sense 
to import lamb from Australia when we could grow them here. Instead, as prices would remain static, we would offset any unnecessary transportation costs and local food producers would be in demand. This encourages a diversification of local economies, but also has the potential to severely lessen our carbon footprint. A global governing body would also be able to impose a flat tax rate on corporations that would not infringe upon the nation's ability to attract business, as it would be static everywhere. This new source of revenue could be used to eradicate disease, fund education, eliminate hunger, and yes, even help to create jobs. Things can be better as a whole. We need to start looking at the planet not as a collage of nations, but as a single canvas painting of one people. One people, one planet. And we only get one shot. So what do we do? While my words now will sound more like the echo of a crowd somewhere in Tunisia or Egypt, Libya or even Wisconsin, we must take action. We, especially here in Canada, with all of our freedom and opportunity, must elect leaders who represent our needs rather than cater to a business elite. And for those of you skeptics who no longer believe this possible, I ask you to consider the power of the Canadian people in the recent CRTC debate over metered internet usage. The people spoke and their voices were heard, loud and clear. Corporate tax exemptions must stop. We must not stand for the disembowelment of our labor unions. We need government creation or drastic UN reform, however you'd like to put it, but we need to continue our consideration beyond our national borders. It is time for justice to take on meaning beyond that of international economic business mediation. It is time for a government of the people, of all the people. I'd like to conclude with a call to action. Oh, please bear with me for a moment while I attack my fellow colleagues. Um, I'd like to address the academic community about an issue that I feel is impeding our ability to inspire change. I often hear many of my colleagues complain that we Westerners are apathetic. I do not believe people to be of an apathetic nature. The people here in Canada, in North America, don't not care. They don't know. And the people don't know because we don't take the time or make the effort to tell them. It is our responsibility as academics and as engaged citizens to inform the people so that we, they may make informed decisions. But so often, when we do make the attempt, we use unnecessary jargon or we're dry. 
And because of this, there's an extreme disconnect between these people and the public. They don't trust us because we don't always take the time to explain ourselves in layman's words. The people are capable of understanding. It is we who don't speak the vernacular. And as my brother pointed out after my last speech, um, the word vernacular is not actually part of the vernacular, and I apologize. My call then to you is to speak to the people. Make your voices heard and share your knowledge. Show that you have persistence in your own lives. Make your voices heard. Speak eloquently, but with passion. And let none who will listen evade you. Help make the change that we need. Inspire that change. Be that change. Thank you.